Thanks for checking out the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. To find out more about us, visit our website at iloveelevate.com. You can also stay up to date with what's going on by finding us on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. We hope you enjoy this message and it brings you closer to Jesus. As it is in heaven. Lord, Holy Spirit, come and unite your people tonight. Plant seeds in our hearts that can't be snatched away or dried out or choked out. Lord, I pray that you will open up our minds. Make us fresh and fertile soil for your word. Let your word penetrate deep into our hearts. And Lord, I pray that at the end of this, at the end of the scriptures, at the end of the stories, at the end of this message, Lord, we are moved to worship you because we get a new understanding about how great you are, how majestic and holy you are, how other you are. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. He is so worthy of all of our praise. If every breath we took gave him praise, not one would be wasted. What a God we serve. I'm so excited about tonight. The Bible says to love the Lord your God with all of your what? Heart, all of your, and all of your mind. Thank you, Joel. Tonight, We're going to pursue God with our mind. Often, we'll pursue God with our emotions in worship. Sometimes it's with our emotions that we enjoy what a preacher says because he has great, you know, stories or emotional touching cliches or whatever. And and we get all excited and fired up and then we leave and we're like, yeah, that was amazing, but I can't remember, remember any of it. And yet Jesus challenges us to pursue him also with our minds. It's okay to ask questions. God is a big enough God. He can handle you asking hard questions. God, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Lord, what what is going on with the complexities and mysteries of what you reveal in your word? It's okay for you to ask questions. God wants you to. That would be like sitting across from a very attractive date, and having no interest in getting to know them at all. You're just like, I'm here for food. No, there's so much more. There is a pursuit. There is a knowledge exchange. And tonight, we're going to dig into one of the foundational principles, fancy word, doctrines of our faith. Tonight is a message for people in here who take your faith seriously. Many of you in here decided that your faith was so serious to you that you dedicated your whole life to the God that your faith represents. So if you're in here and you take your faith seriously, you're like, I want to know everything that I can about the nature of this God. I want to pursue him and know him. I want to understand some of the complexities of his majesty. Buckle up. Tonight is a night to take great notes. So prepare yourself. Oh, Lord, bless this. Let it be a word from you. Shut my mouth and it's anything of me. And I pray, Lord, that we're moved to worship as we learn about you. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things about our God is that he has been studied and pursued for thousands of years. It wasn't last week that pastors started to try to study the Bible and understand who God is. 
It wasn't last year. It wasn't 10 years ago or 100 years ago. It has been thousands of years that people have sat down and poured their lives into the Word of God seeking to understand this God. And many of them have uncovered nuggets of gold and passed them on for other people to wrestle with and expand and wrestle with and expand. And we're going to do just a little tiny bit of church history tonight. And we're going to do a whole lot of theology. We're going to unpack, in Jesus' name, the Trinity. The Trinity that is unpackable. A pursuit of our mind that's not comprehensible. And it's beautiful and wonderful. And it shows how infinite our God is. And there was a man named Irenaeus. There's several people that really chewed after this. It was Irenaeus, Augustine, some people called the Cappadocians, uh, and a few others that we'll mention in passing. But Irenaeus used the term economy of salvation. Now, I just want to unpack what that word means because it's, it's actually really easy. It just means God's work of salvation in human history. So as in from the beginning of beginningness through today all the way to the end of time, God's work of salvation, his plan, his story of salvation in that human history is what he's referring to when he says the economy of salvation. This is God's salvation plan in human history. Now we have to understand the first thing that we we need to know about God is that God is transcendent. God is other. He is outside the capabilities of understanding in human experience. There aren't human words to wrap our minds around him. He's outside and existing apart from the physical universe that he created. The second thing you need to understand is that humanity is very finite. It's corrupted and it's impaired from knowing and experiencing a transcendent God. It's fundamentally, we are fundamentally incapable of hearing God's word. If God is so transcendent, if he's so otherworldly, and we're stuck inside of our our human bodies in this timeline, stuck in the passage of time in these three limited dimensions, how could we ever know an infinite, transcendent God? The only way that we could know him is for him to make the choice to reveal himself to us. That's revelation. We are passive in this. Remember, we're sin. We're sinners. From the day we're born until Jesus covers us with his blood at the point of our salvation, we are sinners. Our satellite dish for knowing God has been blown up. It's smoldering and useless until God wakes that up inside of us through the Holy Spirit. Yet sinful humanity has heard the word of God. And the purpose of God's revelation to us, the reason that God said, I'm up here, y'all down there, I'm going to reveal myself to them, is for the purpose of showing us our own sinful nature. Jesus says that we walk around with eyes, but we don't see. We walk around with ears, but we're not hearing. It's because until a revelation hits us that goes, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner then there is no hope for mending that relationship between a transcendent God and a finite human being. So we have a problem. And it's a big problem. And this old theologian named St. Augustine, he described it like this. He said he was walking on the beach one day, and he saw a boy who had dug a hole in the sand, you know, a little hole, And he's taking handfuls of water and putting the water into the hole. And then runs back to the ocean again, gets some more water, and goes back. And Augustine is like, what are you doing? And the kid says, I intend to empty the ocean into this hole. 
And he's like, what? That's, that's lunacy. And then it hit him. And he writes the words, how could the vast mystery of God fit into a book using mere words? There are limits placed on the human ability to grasp the things of God. Human language falls short. The images that we have that we could conjure up are still based on our human reality. So how could we, having no experience except this finite life, begin to wrap our mind around, have words for, have imagery to express and describe an infinite God? We have a problem. It's an awesome problem. Paul, referring to this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, says, We see in a mirror dimly, but then, as in eternity with Christ, we're going to see him face to face. Imagine the mirror in your house. Maybe it's dirty after, like, a year that you haven't cleaned it. It's got, like, you know, toothpaste spatter on it, you know, and it's got pimples that you popped onto it, and it's dusty and stuff, you know. And then imagine that all the light bulbs except this one little dim bulb are out, and you're trying to see your face. Paul says that's what it's like to try to comprehend the things of God. We see into a mirror dimly. He goes on to say, we know in part, but the day's going to come that we're going to know in the same way that he knows us. We'll know him as well. Augustine concludes with this thought, and you need to hang on to this for the rest of this. And you need to hang on to this when you go home, because this is how we're going to conclude tonight. He concludes with a Latin phrase. I'm going to botch this up, I'm sure. See comprehendus non est deum. And it means, if you can comprehend it, it cannot be God. Y'all like that? The moment that you think that you've wrapped your mind around understanding God and his principles, you are no longer understanding the God that is in charge of the universe. Because our human finite minds are so limited compared to the vastness of his glory. Tonight... We're going to begin a new series in the book of Mark. We're going to look at the life of Jesus through the 16 chapters of Mark, and we're going to open up, and tonight we're only talking about one verse, Mark 1, 1. You ready for this? Here we go. The beginning, oh, I can read it. Yes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, I told you, this is time for the people to take their faith seriously to start thinking. What's wrong with this sentence? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because if you are a scholar of the Old Testament, you might start thinking to yourself verses like Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. The Jews say this every day. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah 45, 20 through 24, if I was to sum it, it would say, basically, there's no gods except me. And we approach this verse that says, God, one God, solo, uno, individual, all-powerful, has a son named Jesus Christ. What are we to do with that information? Where do we park that in our brains? The New Testament People, the, the apostles surrounding Jesus, had a very difficult challenge to deal with because they see this guy who claims to be the Son of God, who claims to be God incarnate, who is doing miracles that only God could do, who is raising people from the dead, which only God can do, who is stopping weather, which only God can do, 
who forgives sins, which only God can do, and then raises himself from the dead, again, only which God can do, all which have been foretold in the Old Testament scriptures that the coming Messiah would do. And they had to try to park this information. How does one God have a son? And so here they are with the truth of the Old Testament, all those books and prophets of the Old Testament, and God comes in and drops this bomb on them and blows their minds, and they have to go back and reread all the Old Testament scriptures in light of that new truth. So they have this, this unveiled nature of God truth, but then, boom, their mind is blown. they got to go back and try to process how this fits. It's kind of like there's great movies out there that they'll save a twist to the end, right? Uh, movies like The Sixth Sense, The Book of Eli, and I'm not going to ruin them for you, but there's like this truth at the end that makes you go back and rethink the whole movie. And you're like, i got to watch the movie again and figure out how this truth applies to the rest of the movie. How much more the Old Testament or the New Testament writers, the apostles of Christ, that have spent their whole lives being good Jewish boys, saying every day, Hero Israel, Yahweh, your God is one. And this guy is standing here saying he's the Son of God. What does it mean that Jesus is God's Son? Does that make him God? Are Jesus and the Father the same person? Are they similar substance? Are there two gods now? So they poured through the Hebrew scriptures and they started spotting really cool things like Genesis 1.26 and then God said, let us make man in our image. And they started seeing some interesting snippets. Psalm 110.1 that Jesus actually quotes. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What? David saying, Yahweh said to my Lord, what? There's something strange going on here. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. Catch this. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. So basically, God's saying, I'm coming, and he will come in this way. He will come as the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. So how do you have this this mind-blowing paradox of God saying, I am personally coming, and he will do this. Concepts that maybe they overlooked before, things like God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. The angel of Yahweh throughout the Old Testament acting in God-like authority. The promised coming Messiah was prophesied to do works that only God could do. These are the kind of things that Paul argued in the synagogues about to show that Jesus was the Messiah. And so these writers, these apostles, these people that knew Jesus, these people that weren't just kind of certain that Jesus might be God, they were so kind of certain that they went to their graves tortured to death, claiming it to their dying breath. They were absolutely rock-solid, foundational, new in their deepest bones that Jesus Christ was not just sent by God, but he was God himself in flesh. And they gave it all up for them. This is a great little video. Um, it's done by Lutheran satire. And it's Peter and Paul, and they're like, hey, let's start a religion. All right, great. What are we going to get out of it? Nothing. Actually, we're going to be martyred, and it's going to be terrible. Well, will we at least get, like, money? No. Will we get lots of chicks? No. So I guess the only way that we'll be willing to go and die for something is if we know that it's true. 
And so these apostles that were surrounding Jesus, wrestling with a God who has a son, who is God, began to write things like this, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is beautiful. He is the image, talking about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Think about that. I'll just stop for a second. Jesus is the image, the portrait, the expression of what we can see, touch, hear of, an, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. Talking about Jesus, not the Father. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him consists of all things. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him... Okay, so we have, we have that uniqueness again. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus. Hang on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. How are those true at the same time? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And in him was the life and the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I want to skip forward to verse 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. The word was with God, the Word was God, but that Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Again, there is the Father and there's the Son, but they are with and the same at the same time. Our church fathers, those that came before us that have spent their lives pouring their lives into this, came to the conclusion, the apostles came to the conclusion that Jesus is not only equal with God, that Jesus is God. Now, as they're wrestling with this, some bad heresies came out of it. Heresies are whenever you take scripture and you get it wrong. And then you preach it and a whole bunch of people get it wrong now. Some of the heresies, one of them is called, I'm going I'm to mess up these names, but one of them is called docetism. And the root word in docetism means to seem, as in it's similar to. And that taught that Jesus Christ is purely divine who only had the appearance of being human. He only appeared to suffer on the cross. There's a group of people called the Gnostics, and they loved holding on to this idea because they believe that everything of the material world, everything that's matter, must be evil. Therefore, Jesus couldn't come in flesh. He couldn't come in matter if matter is evil. And so they hang on to this idea that basically Jesus is just a ghost pretending to be human. It's a heresy that's not true. Another one is uh, eboniatism. I don't even know. It taught that Jesus was endowed with particular charismatic gifts which distinguished him from other humans, but nonetheless, he was purely human. Basically, this preaches that Jesus was just this really awesome guy, you know. 
Adoptionism taught that Jesus was born totally human, but later God adopted him in a special way and gave him divinity. Some versions taught that Jesus' divinity came on him at baptism. So just a normal guy, and at baptism, God's like, I'm going to make you a God. And then that divinity basically bailed on him at the cross so that he could die. So like, yeah, work's done, I'm out. So basically, God makes a man into a God. There's another one, and we're, this is going to come up again. This is called Arianism. And this is the idea that Jesus was a created being of the Father, that God created Jesus, that Jesus was his first creation. And because God, the Father, is too holy to be around us humans, he had to send the created being, Jesus, to be around. Basically, the idea is that Jesus is inferior to the Father since he is just a created creature. These are all heresies. Jesus is not only co-equal with God, he is God. In the following centuries, our church fathers wrestled with this. But they also started seeing some other truths, some other revelation that God brought through it. Genesis 1-2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So we have the Spirit that's also playing a role in creation. Think about Samson in Judges chapter 14 says that the spirit of Yahweh came on him and he'd go out and like kill people or something. And we see that kind of thing throughout the Old Testament that the spirit of God would come on someone for great works and great deeds. And then Joel in chapter 2 verse 28 says that it's going to come to pass after a time and God is speaking. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now up until the New Testament revelation through Jesus, People just interpreted that as meaning God the Father himself basically empowered someone to do something. God himself lent his presence to someone or a situation. But by the time we get to the New Testament writers, they're writing stuff like this, Galatians 4, 6. And because you are the sons and daughters of God, God has sent forth his spirit of his Son into your hearts crying out, Abba, Father. John 14, 16 through 18, and here's a pivotal moment right here. Jesus is talking, he says, I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. John 20, 22, Jesus is talking again, and he says, he's talking to the disciples, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know, I didn't catch it at first, but you have to understand that if Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit, that means that Jesus is not sending the Father anymore. It has to be disconnected from just the Father showing up. The Holy Spirit is in submission to Jesus being sent to be with us. And so it dislodges the idea that it's just God the Father showing up. Because it says that Jesus is going to go to the Father to send the Spirit. That's a pivotal moment. That changes the game. The Holy Spirit is a third. John fifteen twenty six. Jesus says this, But when the Helper comes 
whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. There is a third. Somewhere in the complexity of this mystery, this mystery that makes up the majesty of who our God is, there's a third. Now, I don't want to like bum you out, but nowhere in Scripture is the word Trinity. However, the revelation of the Trinity quickly becomes apparent. And because God's Word bears witness to it, it shows us that God desires to be known and understood in this Trinitarian manner. Here's some great sightings. Mark 1, 9-11, this is the baptism of Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So we have Jesus, Son of God, in flesh. He's being baptized in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being opened up and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So we have Jesus in flesh, the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. It then a voice from heaven says, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Who could call Jesus Son but the Father himself? And so we have a triad in the same story of the Son, God made flesh, of the God descending on him in power, and God the Father who is speaking over him in pleasure. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the... and of the... and of the... It's a sighting of a very real trinity. Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 33 says, God raised this Jesus to life. This is Luke speaking. God raised this Jesus to life and we were all witnesses. So we were the ones that saw him alive. He was exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. There's an undeniable truth that is threaded throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, that is giving credibility and witness to our God in the complexity of three. So before I deal with what is the Trinity, let's deal with what the Trinity is not. Because the Trinity, what the Trinity is not is what we end up buying into. So here are some heresies that happened with the Trinity. The first one is huge. The first one is called modalism. Think about it as different modes. People believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct personalities, but three different modes of God's self-revelation. The idea is that God is like an actor, and today he puts on the mask, I'm God the Father. Wait, wait, wait. I'm God the Son. Hold on. And now I'm God the Holy Spirit. So there is no distinctiveness between the three, nor are the three existent at the same time. It is God changing masks, changing modes. He is never at one point triune, and there's no difference except just appearance and where it happens in time. Someone who would hold to this belief, would say, well, he was God the Father up until the New Testament, and then he showed up as God the Son, and then after Jesus ascended, he showed up as God the Holy Spirit. Some of our bad analogies might be somebody saying, well, this is like one guy, and he can be a dad, and he can be a brother, and he can be a father all at the same time. But you can't be the father to yourself. 
if modalism was true, who was Jesus praying to when he was in the garden? Oh, me! Let the cup pass from me. How could Jesus send the Holy Spirit to his people? Hold on. I'll be right back. Ta-da! These are bad analogies. Another bad analogy is that water can be in a solid liquid and vapor. And then people are like, but they can do it at the same time. But still, it's a bad analogy because the idea that they are not triune. They are each individual states. Or maybe the idea that a person is a soul, a spirit, and a body at the same time. The Christian response to this is, like I said, John 17, 5. Jesus is praying, but he's praying to the Father. It denies the fact that God says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because a modalist would say that God changed. This also removes God's fathership to Christ and Christ's sonship to the Father, since they would have to be the same. Modalism is dangerous. Another one is that tritheism. That's where we take the idea of a trinity and we break it into three different gods. It's polytheism all over again. They confess that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three independent divine beings, although they're made up of the same substance. That's like being like, well, like a spoon, a fork, and a knife are all different, but they're made up of the same silver. That's polytheism. It's a bad analogy. The Christian response would be, Deuteronomy 6, 4, O hero Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Another one, I told you to hear about it again, is Arianism. It's the idea that the Son and Holy Spirit are creations of the Father. It's taught that the preexistent Christ was the first and greatest of God's creatures. This might be a bad analogy. It might be like, well, the, the, the Trinity is like the Son and it gives off light, and it gives off heat. But the heat and the light are creations of the star. Or maybe the idea that the Father speaks the Word, which would be Jesus, and his breath is the Holy Spirit. But again, it's the idea that these are creations of the first. And this is dangerous because it gives the idea that the Son and the Holy Spirit are inferior to the Father instead of co-equal in majesty and glory. The Christian response is John 1, 1 through 5 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was never a point that the Word was not. He always was. Another one is partialism. That's the idea that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three components of God, sort of like a, a three-leaf clover. You know, it's like a three-headed monster kind of idea. Some of the bad analogies around this are like, well, an egg has the yolk, and it has the, the egg white, and it has the shell, but they're all the egg. Maybe the idea is like an apple, or maybe it's like oceans. was the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, but they're all the same ocean. And this is dangerous because it removes the Trinity flowing and being of the same oneness because the apple skin and the apple meat is not unified. They are different things. We're almost on the edge of polytheism here, if you try to divide them like that. The Christian response, John 14, 7 through 10, Jesus is talking. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. So knowing Jesus is knowing the father. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. You can't go look at the Atlantic Ocean and say, I have seen the Pacific Ocean. There's a unity that you're missing in those bad examples. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? So that's what the Trinity is not. Let's look at what the Trinity is. We have to begin our economy of salvation that there lies only one God and only one God only. And in within that one God, we see at work three distinct roles being played or personas. Irenaeus says it this way, God the Father, uncreated, who is uncontained, invisible, one God, creator of the universe. This is the first article of our faith. In the word of God, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who, in the fullness of time, in order to gather all things to himself, he became human, he became a human being amongst human beings, capable of being seen and touched, to destroy death, bring life, restore fellowship between God and humanity. Amen? And the Holy Spirit, who in the fullness of time was poured out in a new way on our human nature in order to renew humanity throughout the entire world in the sight of God. There are three distinctions and purposes and roles that are being played in that one God. In short, the Father is distinguished by fatherhood. He is the creator. The Son is distinguished by sonship, the redeemer. The Holy Spirit is distinguished by that sanctifying work of holiness that he does and uniting the church. To say it in an easier way, God, while remaining transcendent, became incarnate in flesh and further now indwells in the believers through the Holy Spirit. i got to take a sidestep. We're dealing with theology here. I'm going to ask you some weird questions. And you'll be shocked to see how, how important they are. If Jesus was sent by the Father and submitted to his will, does that make him inferior to the Father? Think about that. Why is it important? Because it supports the heresy that Jesus is less than God and not a co-equal. So the answer has to be no. Philippians 2, 6-11. I love this. This is so beautiful. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Paul is, is trying to get his, God's people to be unified. Talking about Jesus. Being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Jesus is equal. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and those of earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so we have Jesus not being inferior to God, but of taking a temporary role of submission for a purpose. This is kind of hard to unpack in our human culture, but within marriage, God has, within marriage, roles for us to play. Now, in no means, in anywhere in the Bible, is a woman ever considered inferior in any way, shape, or form. Actually, it's the Bible that elevates women high above every other culture around them. But God does call my wife to play a role that's different from what he calls me to play. And so for a temporary time, Jesus puts himself into human flesh to become submissive to the Father to the point that he says, I'm not doing anything unless I see my Father doing it. Jackie is no greater or less than me. Actually, she's way better than me in so many ways. 
but she takes the choice and makes a decision for our unity and for our purpose to play the role of a wife and say, I'm going I'm to choose you. I'm going to let you lead. And so Jesus takes that role with the Father. Here's another question. Did the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father only or from the Father and the Son? I know that sounds like, like why, why is that important? Did the Holy Spirit come from just the Father or did he come from the Father and the Son? Here's why it's important. Because if the Spirit proceeds from the Father only, that means that the Son and the Holy Spirit both proceed from the Father. That means that God has two sons now. Ooh, that's dangerous. And so he proceeds from the Father and the Son, John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, Jesus is talking, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. It wasn't until this awesome church father guy named, named Tertullian. Can you all say that? Tertullian. I know. You didn't name your turtle that. Tertullian turtle. That's such a great turtle name. Oh, man. Just came up with that. That is great. He is the one that devised the word Trinity. And it means three in unity. And he unpacks it further by saying that there are three personas within the unity of one Substance. Substance mean, meaning being, essence, three distinct personas, but one being, essence, substance. I think I've got a, maybe there's a graphic. It's a triangle. Is it? Yes. So check this out. If this, this is probably sorely inaccurate, but it's the best that we got. But if this helps, let it help a little bit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Jesus was in the garden, not praying to himself. We have to accept that. But we also know that within our one God, he expresses himself with three purposes, three roles. In the Trinity, there is both unity and distinctiveness. They are distinct and different, but they are not divided nor independent. One more step in understanding the Trinity is a word called mutual interpermeation. Follow me this way. That means that each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while maintaining their distinctive identity, permeate the others and is permeated completely by them. Do you all follow that? Each one of the members is wholly woven completely into the other members. All three are completely permeating each other. This allows the individuality of the persons to be maintained while insisting that each person shares in the life of the other two. If you're like, my mind is blowing up, I can't wrap my mind around this, good. Because if you can understand God, that's no longer God you're trying to understand. Appropriation is the second kind of word. Oh, yeah, yay, God is awesome. If those three are are fully permeating each other, then that means that the work of the Trinity is in unity, as in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in every outward work of the Godhead. So that, and we see this in creation, we we give the distinction of creator to God the Father, but we know by John 1.1 that it was through the word that everything was created by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Father carries the distinction of creator, and yet... The Son and the Holy Spirit 
are just as involved. Jesus Christ received the distinction of redemption through the cross, and yet the Father and Holy Spirit are just as involved. Consider it this way. Again, this is probably a terrible analogy, but if it helps, great. Imagine the idea that I, Dominic Ferrone, sign a check to purchase something. So me, in the flesh of me, I'm the one, it's my name that I sign and write this check. However, I'm also united with my wife, one flesh. We made the decision together to spend this money, and the money is coming out of our joint account. And so although I am carrying the distinction of writing my name on the check, there is a duality of what's happening here and a mutual interest of unity working together to do it. Did you all follow that at all? Does that help at all? Lord, you're awesome. By the time we get into the mid-fourth century, two different huge church gatherings, which are super important, were the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople. You probably heard of the Council of Nicaea because out of it came the Nicene Creed. You all heard of the Nicene Creed? I believe in God the Father, Creator. Yes, amazing. Puts into words kind of the whole thing of what we're talking about tonight. They finally sort of, between those two councils, nailed down the understanding of the Trinity as best as we could put into human words. And I love this. This is a theologian from just maybe 100 years ago. His name is Karl Barth. And he says this, The Trinity is not the final... Stay with me, just a couple more minutes. The Trinity is not the final revelation of God or the final word spoken, but it is the first revelation of God and the first word spoken because its subject matter makes everything else we know about God possible. Maybe it's easier to understand this way. A theologian today, his name is Ravi Zacharias. Have you all heard of him? YouTube that guy. You could just burn up hours watching this, this guy. He says this, and I love it. He argues that the God of the Bible, he argues that the God of the Bible must be a trinity. He cannot be completely oneness because, get this, he would not be able to be a God who loves or communicates because if God is solo alone as the Godhead before creation, who is he speaking to? if we know that God speaks. Before creation, who is he loving if we know that God loves? If he was the same yesterday, today, and forever, then before creation, he was already loving and he was already speaking. To who? It has to be a trinity. He has to be a triune God within the Godhead himself or he would not be the same yesterday, today, and forever. He would have to create so he had something to love, and therefore he's no longer sovereign. He has to be complete within himself, not needing anything or anybody. And so before there was creation, he was already a loving God and a speaking God. Get this. Every religion on the planet first has life, but then Love is inserted into that life. We serve a God who was first love and out of that chose to create life. What a flip. There was love before there was life. If you remove the Trinity in diversity, the unity in diversity from God, then he's no longer sovereign and he can't be personal anymore. He can only be transcendent. 
It is only if that God would step into human flesh for us to know him, for us to have revelation for us to know him, that we could know him. I know that's crazy, right? But it's the only way that he can be a personal God. It's the only way that he can love. It's the only way that he can speak. Is he is already a triune God. I know this seems confusing. Good. May we worship in the majesty of his mystery. May we go before God and say, God, you are so much greater than I am. How can I not fall at your feet and be your servant? God, you are so other. You see deeper than I am. You know beyond the width of my vision. How great are you, God? How can I not live my life to let you lead? May his complexity, may his mystery drive us to worship. May it drive us to be submitted to him, to serve him. Yeah, you know what? It's confusing. Yeah, if you can comprehend it, it definitely can't be God anymore. But I hope that we will grow to be able to rest in the majesty of his mystery. Because if you can rest in the majesty of his ministry, the majesty of his mystery, that means that you're operating in faith. That faith that without it, you can't please God, comes to God and says, God, I don't know, but I'm yours anyway. God, I don't get it, but I choose you. What is love other than choosing and setting ourselves aside for? The only way that we can even begin to get our minds around this is to begin with, God, I don't know, but you're worth it. God, I don't get it, but you're awesome. And that keeps me coming back. We have all of eternity to pursue this stuff. And you know what? We see dimly in a mirror now, but the day will come that we will know in the same way that we are known. That we know in part now, but we will know fully then. That our human spirit and mind will be dislocated from time and this dimension and placed into the eternal glory of of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. To behold him in all of his majesty and glory. And you know what? He'll probably still be a mystery. And it'll keep us coming for all of eternity. There is nothing wrong with asking hard questions. God desires us to pursue him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our minds. May you pick up on what the church fathers laid down for us. May you continue to chew and pursue Start seeing scripture in a whole new light. As you read the Old Testament, you start picking up on things. As you read the New Testament, you're like, this, this is awesome. God, you are awesome. God, you are so much more than the vocabulary that I have. Awesome God, awesome God, God, awesome. See the difference? He is God. Heavenly Father. We submit to you our finite mind. And Lord, I ask you that you will put inside of us a craving to know more, to desire your Holy Spirit to reveal more every day. Let us be driven to your word to know your nature, to love a God who loved us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit that reveals Thank you for the gift of your word that reveals. 
Thank you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Yahweh. Our one God, who through the salvation of mankind expresses yourself and reveals yourself through this trinity of salvation. Lord, let us crave, let us pursue, let us find you. Lord, bless every man and woman in this room. Plant seeds in us. Empower us. Protect us. Let us take our faith so seriously. We offer up this coming week. We offer up our lives. We offer up the lives of those around us, our past, our presence, and our future to you our majestically mysterious God, worthy of all glory and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Elevate! Jesus! Yeah. Elevate! Jesus! Oh, he is so worthy. Elevate! Jesus! All right, you guys have a great week. Can't wait to see you next week. We're going to keep going through the book of Mark. Hey, Elevate! If anybody has any questions or wants to unpack this further, I'll sit here, and if you're like, Dom, let's talk about this more, I'll be hanging out right here.